welcome to Ladies Who London podcast. We bring to you bits of London's history interspersed with technical difficulties and one host after the other. Hello, listeners. This is Alex. Um, as you might already pick up from, from that slightly random intro, um, technology's had the better of us this week. Emily's internet, the saga of Emily's internet rumbles on and we have just not been able to get a stable internet connection to be able to chat. So I'm going to do the start of the podcast and then Emily is going to come in with uh, her recorded bit, which will be without, you're probably happy to hear, my stupid interruptions and my cackle, um, but I'm sure it will be absolutely as, as amazing as Emily ever is. So um, welcome to this week's podcast, a slightly uh, random one um and news this week uh i'm currently out in the cotswolds uh on a little well, sort of I'm, I'm cat sitting for a friend gang um it's supposed to be a holiday but i'm working all the time so it's not really a holiday but it's really nice and uh, my sister-in-law has said oh i bet it's like the house from the holiday and it kind of is it's really sweet it's this little cottage in stroud in the cotswolds and i've basically been working and sleeping and very happy with that <laughs> looking after two uh, very lovely but very low-key kitties so um they are around and they'll probably be meowing in the background um and emily this week uh, well she told me to tell you she's made a nut roast I know, hold the front page. Uh, she's made a vegan nut roast and a spiced pumpkin soup. And she hollowed out a pumpkin for Halloween. So, I mean, get excited, gang, because those are some pretty exciting things to, to know about this week. Um, also, she's cut all the hair off and gone uh, back to her natural colour, which she's not been since she was a sailor clown around 15. <laughs> and so she's now brown uh, instead of blonde. I've told her we are not changing the thumbnail for the podcast so she can just stay blonde um but i'm sure that she'll tell you all about it when we uh when we chat to her next if you can wait for that fantastically exciting news um so before we head on into the the body of the pod which will be done by Ms. Dell herself um we have a little shout out to the lovely alexander graff who is a listener who's been listening for, for i think since the beginning actually and we have one more amongst us, ladies, because she says, ladies, today I had my citizenship ceremony and I'm officially a British citizen. Uh, so welcome to the fold, Alexandra. You are now one of us. You're not getting away uh, that easily, even if you'd like to after everything that's going on with the government right now. Uh, don't go. Don't go. Stay here. Um, but we welcome you warmly into the fold of being another British lady who Londons. Um, so congratulations. How exciting. Um, and also, I have a little uh, bit of, well, something to invite you to, actually. Um, now, I won't be there, but I know we've got half term coming up. And there's quite a bit of really lovely stuff happening um, over half term. So we've got a couple of our sort of friend places in London who are doing uh, some lovely half term things. Now, one of them is the Household Cavalry Museum. Uh, the one of our listeners, Alice, works there. She's um, a bit of a, a big cheese at the ca uh, Household Cavalry Museum. In fact, she's the director, gang. Oh, yes. Uh, listens to this pod. And she's super, super lovely. And she's told us about um, Wednesday, the 26th of October, when we have Open Day. And it's during the family's half term. And it's a fundraiser for the museum. And there's all sorts of fun stuff that's going to be going on. You can go and meet the horses. You can... Uh, oh, all, all sorts of cool stuff. And if you want to know where that is... Um, if you know where the Horse Guards Parade is, the sandy bit out the back, 
Um, if you're looking, if you're standing on the sand and you are looking at the archway that goes through to Whitehall, the Household Cavalry Museum is just on the left there. Now, it's very easy to miss. A lot of people miss it, but I have to say it's a real gem. So if you are in London and you're thinking about something to do with the kids for half term next week, I strongly recommend going and giving that a look. It's amazing. And also um, the old operating theatre where... We, which we had an entire episode on a while back. Monica, the lovely Monica, who you might remember came on and did a bit of a chat uh, with us. She is hosting a whole variety of kids things over the half term uh, break. So go and have a look at the website for the old operating theatre. There's all sorts of fun and games to be had. And I think, you know, if you're looking for something to do with the kids this week in London, there's plenty out there. Those are those are two great places to start. So uh, so go and enjoy and send us pictures. We'd love to see. Um, don't forget to tag them in social media if you go to because that's uh, always rather nice, especially for these smaller sites that don't always get the footfall. Um, but there we go. Um, now podcast pedestal. I'm quite glad I get to do this. <laughs> without Emily this week um, because as you might imagine I have lost yeah um, so last week we talk about, talked about the Berners Street hoax which is all about this chap who basically managed to sort of hoax and prank his friends into or well rather all of London into making uh, this particular address in Berners Street the most talked about address for one day by getting the most enormous amount of people and things along to the house um, under the pretense of, of them needing uh, to have all these supplies come along. And it became this massive thing. And I love the idea of him chuckling away in the house on the other side. So I went for the beefy butchers who were all carrying this massive leg of mutton uh, in. And Emily went for two and a half thousand tarts. And you guys clearly are a bunch of tarts because you've that's what you voted for in quite overwhelming numbers about 75 percent of you went for the tarts so i'm quite glad that emily is not here this week to hear that <laughs> because yeah well so i don't know what the, the the thing is but she's drawing closer she's drawing closer and while she's not here gang come on i want to win this i'm not messing vote for my ones i'm not messing there we go just trying to sabotage the entire thing um but I think for this week, um, we're going to go straight into the podcast with Emily uh, and she will do the, the wrap up at the end as well. So excuse us for the really random way we're doing this this week, but it's just the way it is. Um, yeah, Emily's rubbish internet will hopefully be getting sorted tomorrow. Uh, so next week, fingers crossed, we will not be in two different places. We will back, be back on the same stream. But for the moment, here is my glorious horrifyingly talented, spectacularly beautiful co-host, Emily Dell. Take it away, Em. Hello and good evening, podcast listeners. Um, I feel a little bit naked. I'm not, um, but I do feel a little bit bare because Alex is not um, here with me. I mean, she's not usually here with me because we usually record the podcast over Zoom, but I can at least hear her breathing and see her face and, you know, hope, uh, you know, with huge fingers crossed that she is potentially listening to what I'm going on about. Um, but she is not here. Well, um, she's in the Cotswolds and you would have just heard that we are having a few teething problems with our Wi-Fi, mainly my Wi-Fi. I mean, I shouldn't just put the blame on her as well. It is mainly me. Um, tomorrow I should be getting a new router, but, you know, this is not exciting and I'm not going to bore you with these kind of talk-talk issues. Um, 
anyway, last week, the Wheel of Destiny landed in a fabulous area and it's called Leicester Square. It has landed in Leicester Square before and Alex and I spoke about all sorts of different entertainments in Leicester Square. We spoke about Wide's globe that you could actually go into and enjoy the map of the world from the inside. And we are in the 1920s for this particular podcast episode and I'm going to be talking about a woman who was very well known for being the queen of the clubs, Kate Merrick. So if you please and you're sitting comfortably, I would like to tell you a little bit about this fascinating woman. And uh, it's very strange knowing that Alex is not going to um, be by my side and comment. Um, But uh, I'm sure sure she'll listen to this, you know, fully when she's editing. Probably not. Um, But um, we can only imagine what she would say. And she'd probably say right now, just get on with it, for God's sake, Right, okay, so we are in the roaring 1920s, and this, of course, is a time for excess, freedom. I mean, of course, we've just had World War One, so people are feeling like they just want to shake it all off. There's so much, um, you know, so much sadness and so many dark days that people have had that people want to go out, people want to dance, people want to drink. And the 1920s is a fabulous time for music, especially in London, around Leicester Square, around Soho, we start having all these wonderful jazz bars popping up. But to go back in time a little bit, because we need to go back to 1875, which is the year that Kate Merrick was born. And this young girl was born in Dublin to a middle-class family. Her father was a doctor, but actually died from meningitis in 1876. So she, you know, she wouldn't have really have known her father, unfortunately. Her mother then remarried. She got together with a clergyman. And at the age of seven, Kate lost her mother. So really traumatic time as a youngster, losing her parents at quite a young age. So that's when she and her sister went to live with her, well, live with their grandmother. Um, And she married a doctor herself. Interesting, because obviously her father was a doctor, or maybe, you know, in the late 1800s there were a lot of of doctors around, but um, married a doctor, and she would help out quite a lot with her husband on this psychiatric ward. Eventually they moved to Southsea, which um, is quite dear to me, because um, I studied in Portsmouth, and my parents live on the Isle of Wight, so I'm over in Southsea getting the hovercraft quite a lot, big up the hovercraft. Um, I'm sure Alex would also big up the hovercraft. Um, And then eventually they go to London, they move to Ealing. Pretty busy time because they have not one, not two, not five, but eight children. But unfortunately, it's not the happiest of marriages. And we know that they filed for a divorce in 1910, but they didn't fully separate until 1919. So they kind of going backwards and forwards I guess and I guess having eight children 
um, you know, there's a lot that kind of keeps keeps a couple together, even if they want to be separated. Um, uh, and the the main point for Kate is that her children are educated, and not just educated, but educated very well indeed. Um, and it's believed that that is the route to where she goes to or why she ends up doing what she does a lot of people go back to the idea that she wanted to educate her children so maybe just keep that in mind with with what I'm going to tell you about her anyway as she splits up with her husband she needs some money she needs some money because she's wanting to send her children to places like Harrow, Rodine you know they are not cheap they are the best of the best in terms of schools and education. So um, she actually responded to an advert about running tea dances in uh, Leicester Square. So originally I didn't think that there was a a link to Leicester Square, but there is, great. Um, And so um, I found that out the other day and I thought, well, okay, you know, I I can have Leicester Square now. So... So she decides to to help out a man called Harry Dalton and together they open a club in Leicester Square and it's called Dalton's. And this is described as the rendezvous for members of the theatrical and variety professions and their friend, and their friends. So it sounds like a, you know, a pretty nice club. Very popular. And popular with a particular group, and these are called the Ladies of the Night. Yes, I am talking about prostitutes, and you know we're in the we're in the area of Soho, nineteen twenties. You've got a lot of brothel houses. You've got a lot of well-to-do establishments where all sorts of naughtiness is going on, and it is believed that prostitutes would frequent the Dalton Club in Leicester Square and uh, sooner or later the police caught up to them and Kate Merrick was actually in the dock and kind of pleaded that they were only there to give comfort to the servicemen. I mean, you know, they're only there to give them a bit of a rub on the shoulder, you know, a bit of a shoulder to cry on, a bit of a, a bit of a tap on the knee. Um... And so, yeah, so eventually, uh, unfortunately, they said, well, I'm sorry, Kate, you know, that's that's not really a good enough excuse. So the club was closed down. This was short lived. But did this stop her? Well, no, of course, it didn't, because she became, you know, the queen of the clubs. So (laughs) she had many clubs. This is just one of them. And actually, people wrote about uh, the Daltons, the dance in hell and a sink of Iniquity, iniquity. Oh God, Alex! If she was here now, she would have a go at me in terms of my pronunciation. But I don't have her here, so I can pronounce it however I want. Iniquity, iniquity, iniquity. Sink of iniquity. Yeah, let's go for that. Um, so we get to a club, and this is called the Forty Three Club, which lived at Forty Three Gerald Street in Soho, which was actually once the home to a poet, John Dryden. Um, and she spends quite a lot of money. She puts quite a lot of attention into 
this club and we know that she spent £2,500 on furniture and blue and gold decor which almost kind of gives me Fortnum and Mason's vibes you know so I'm feeling that it's a little bit of a decadent place. The basement was used as a dance floor and the ground floor housed a large lounge. The bar was located in a small room which was accessed via a locked door. You'll soon find out why it's locked, people. Do not worry, I will um, demystify that. Um, so the manager kept hold of the key. So in terms of the bar, it's kind of, you know, locked away. And it's where jazz would be heard, there would be dancing, Merrick had her merry maids, there would be competitions and you could buy tickets from various places around London and it would say, you know, um, tonight you could win this much money if you dress up as such and such. Um, also beauty pageants and competitions so people could come in and you know have a good old look at the old talents um, so uh, quite a lot of entertainment going on and it's believed that it was open until 6am every day um, but this is where it's um, you know quite questionable because if you're opening until 6am you're probably serving alcohol to keep the regulars going. And if you're not serving alcohol, maybe you're serving something else for 6am. Um, and I'll come to that because around the 1920s, you know, there's a lot of laws around that. So um, there is probably a few naughty things going on. I mean, we are in the red light district in Soho, if you like. Um, and it's a time when you could be whoever you wanted to be and it said it said that the 43 club would have had celebrities criminals members of the royalty you would have had sportsmen thespians drug dealers refugees you know you're really kind of rubbing shoulders with all sorts of people and Merrick actually once said how many people can claim to have intimate acquaintance with royalty with gangsters with the darlings of the stage with notorious murders murderers all these people I have got to know as the general public so I think she's kind of got the attitude that look if you can afford it you're coming in you know no matter what you've done no matter who you are and she probably treats them all the same as well. Um, uh, she once claimed that the Egyptian aristocrat uh, Ali Kamel Fami Bey, uh, which is a pretty long one, Ali Kamel Fami Bey, I'm sure they didn't say it like that, um, had been a regular customer before he was murdered by his wife, Margaret Albert, Albert oh God, bloody hell, um, at the Savoy Hotel. So, you know, you've got somebody there who later murdered his wife. Um, also, gangsters would sometimes refuse to pay. And there was once a disagreement which involved a couple of shots being fired, if you please. Nobody was hurt, but there were glasses that were shattered. There was a bit of damage to a piano. And also, the IRA celebrated at the club after stealing machine guns from the Chelsea Barracks. So she's kind of like, do you know what? It, it doesn't matter. And I think she probably was the kind of person that, you know, if you've got these kind of people in, you might get the journalists round, it might get into the papers, um, you know, all publicity and that kind of thing. 
Anyway, she could often be see- often often be seen. She could often be seen at the front, um, selling tickets. Um, she helped out with the restaurants, not just in this club, but lots of different ones. A couple more that I'll come to. Um, she was listed as a confectioner in the nineteen twenties consensus. Um, I don't know if that was. Uh, to kind of put people off the scent or something, or she was actually a confectioner somewhere within one of the clubs, I'm not too sure. Um, And this 43 club was the longest running out of all of her clubs. I mean, she had a club called the Manhattan. She had one uh, which was in Paris, which wasn't very popular, I have to say. They said there was more waiters and staff than there were uh, members of the public. Um, There was a club called the Slipper, love that name for a club the slipper can imagine alex and i slipping and sliding all over the slipper that sounds absolutely horrendous which is probably why we would go um the slipper had a glass floor and there was a bit of a breakage uh, one evening to hula bankhead um who is somebody that alex and the lovely simon whitehouse spoke about Uh, when I was away one week. I can't remember why I was away. Probably my pesky internet. Um, No, I think I was ill, actually. But, yes, Tallulah Bankhead. I think that's her name. She, I think a bit of a promiscuous character, and she got very drunk and fell over, and uh, actually her glass dropped onto this glass floor and broke a little bit of it. Um... Raids would happen a lot, and you might remember that Alex and I have spoke about raids before. Alex told us about the Caravan Club, which was a gay club in London, which experienced quite a few raids. And they are spoke about in quite an exciting way for some people. They'd say, you know, whistles would be blown, glasses knocked off the tables, especially during the 1920s, because I'll, I'll talk more about this, but laws licensing laws um you know well i can talk about this now Uh, you you weren't allowed to sell alcohol after 11 o'clock and regulations to do with selling alcohol was incredibly strong just after world war one so in terms of a raid glasses would quickly be knocked off the tables by the people in there or the staff in you know like a vain effort to conceal the fact that illegal drinking was taking place. So licensing laws were broke quite a lot. And in 1924, we have a new Home Secretary, William Johnson Hicks. And he basically goes on a massive crusade against nightclubs. And he creates these campaigns. But the problem was that police couldn't enter without a warrant. So how could they possibly go in and see what was happening you know if they went in in their uniform things could easily be hidden so they would often go undercover and they would disguise themselves and actually it said that one constable disguised himself as a a Russian duke at the 43 club with an unlikely name called Maxton Hagel you can imagine his um his attempt perhaps of a Russian accent accent Maxton Hagel 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 Um, so uh, they would go undercover and they would try to, you know, buy alcohol and see what would happen. 
and papers were saying the police are fighting one evil with one arm tied behind their back. They're helpless at present, so they have to act the despicable part of a spy. So Hicks, he, he really wanted to purge London of this this vice and he would go around and he would collect names and addresses of staff and guests and the problem for Kate is all about the licensing laws she breaks the law by selling alcohol on many many occasions and within just a couple of years of opening the 43 club She's spent £1,300 on fines. She's had a six-month prison service. And also she's been in court seven times. Now, this isn't it for her. She will continue to break the law after this. So it never deters her. And her court appearances drew a lot of press, mainly because of the way that she was dressed. She would be seen in a fur-trimmed coat and her friends would be really glamorous and they would be present in the public gallery. I don't know if they'd be allowed to smoke, but you can almost imagine, you know, with hats covering perhaps one eye with a long cigarette and red nail varnish, you know, just looking down at the dock and giving the judge a bit of an evil eye. Um, and she was described in the papers as a wicked woman, you know, but people were still fascinated by her. Some people said, you know, she is, especially in terms of the Home Secretary, saying that she is the problem why we have this vice in Soho. Because remember, she didn't just have one club, she had many. And she could be put in prison or put up in court or pay a fine and it just wasn't going to stop her. And she was reported in saying, fines don't worry me. I, this is how I believe she would talk. Fines don't worry me. I'm getting quite accustomed to them now. I suppose they'll keep on fining me. Well, it can't be helped. You can't run nightclubs unless you are prepared for this sort of thing. You know, she's, and this is, she's quite a small woman. I think she was like five foot four or something. Five foot three, five foot four. Very slim. Um, and nothing would faze her. Nothing would faze her. Um, now, there were 14 occasions when the 43 Club were raided and all was well. And the police were starting to think, what's going on here? We know people are staying there until the early hours of the morning. We know that we've had reports from uh, eyewitnesses saying that people have come out of the club, they're stumbling around, they're clearly inebriated. And they find out why. They find out why they cannot uh, kind of get them in the act or find them in the act when these raids take place. And this is where I want to introduce to you a man called George Goddard. And he worked at the 43 Club from 1924 uh, to 1928. And this was a plainclothes police officer who was instructed to keep an eye on Kate's club so not actually just the 43 club quite a few of them and he was there and the police would you know tell him that okay this raid is going to happen and it seems that he before the raid would happen would notify Kate and the clubs for them to make sure that when the raid happens there's nothing that they will find 
Um, but eventually they start to question Goddard because, you know, he's, he's a police officer. He's not earning buckets and buckets. Um, but he is driving around in expensive cars. He's got a good house as well. And um, and and this actually is is the problem. You know, he should have kept it on the down low, really. But if you're going to have, you know, a fancy watch and you've got a great house and a good car, then people are going to start to question it, Goddard, aren't they? So the law was broken. Kate was sentenced to six months in prison. Um, and her children assisted her during this time with running, the running of her clubs. And she got on very well with her children. She adored them. She would try and spend as much time with them as possible. And they would always help her out. And while she was in Holloway Prison, Goddard was dismissed. And he eventually went to prison himself. And when she was released, she was dressed in a velvet coat. She had a blue hat on. She was carrying a scarlet handbag. And she told reporters and photographers, and bearing in mind this is the second time she's been in prison now. now. She's, so all in all, she's been there 12 months in two separate occasions. And she told reporters that she had a great deal, um, a, a good time, and she did a, a great deal of reading in prison where they had a splendid library. So she sounds, you know, she, she's not too worried about prison at this point. This certainly hasn't put her off. But then a new trial happens to do with the bribery of George Goddard because they eventually, uh, the six months beforehand, she's put in there because she breaks the licensing laws. And now there's a new trial to do with um, the bribery. Uh, well, she says that George Goddard was actually bribing her and saying, look, if you, um, if you don't give me money, then I won't help you kind of thing. She appealed, but this didn't go anywhere, and she had 15 months of hard labour in Holloway. This ended up being 12 months, um, and this changes her. And around this time as well, just before she goes in, when she's in the Old Bailey, there are so many people there. You've got a crowd of several hundred people that are gathered outside. You know, this is a very popular person. But then they hear she's getting 15 months hard labour in Holloway Prison. Um, quite a notorious female prison for uh, criminals. All sorts of people have um, been placed there. It's closed down now. Um, and so she found it very very hard insufferable the her family raised concerns about how thin she was becoming and every time she comes out she just loses herself a little bit more and they did fear that if she was to be placed in jail again after this then she would probably die and um she told reporters when she came out that she had suffered from ill health in prison. So it's very different from when she said, oh, you know, it was, it was nice. I did lots of reading. The library there was lovely. She's now saying openly, I suffer from ill health in prison and had been getting up an unearthly hour to sew mail bags because, remember, it's hard labour. So you're not just there to serve a prison sentence, but you are there to physically work and do something. Um, when she was released this time, many people showed up wearing evening wear, which must have caused such a stir for the papers. Can you imagine? This lady's released and everybody is there in their pearls, in their fur coat, their handbags, 
their top hats and suits and they took her to her home where a champagne party was put on um, in her lovely home which overlooked Regent's Park. But this isn't the last time. So she then goes into prison again. So in the 1930s, she was sentenced once again for six months for selling intoxicating liquor at the Richmond Club, which is another club, um, uh, which, well, it's the same club, actually. It's the 43 Club, but it's just a different name. And that was one way that Merrick would get away with it by just changing the name of the premises as if it was kind of a, a new clean slate, but... It never was. And then in 1931, she received another jail term of six months hard labour for using 43 for the purposes of gaming and betting, selling liquor again. Um, And at this point in 1931, she's 55. She's really unwell. And actually, while uh, while she's in prison, she gets placed into a prison hospital final court appearance so even after she comes out of the prison hospital she is still (laughs) this woman just never stops she is still breaking the law and it's almost you know the question is is it money is it money that's driving her I mentioned about the education of her children she's got eight children to look after what is it that makes her keep going back. It's really interesting whether she just, she had a a, a frill for it. She loved the people in the club atmosphere. Who knows, who knows? I don't really know exactly why. They believe it's because of the children, but, but anyway. So final court appearance in 1932 at Marlborough Street Police Court. She pleaded guilty to supplying intoxicating liquor at the Bunch of Keys Club, so a new club, on the premises of the 43. Um, So new club, but not new club. Um, And she said, I was obliged to give in a court of law an honourable undertaking that I would not transgress for three years those laws which dictate to grown men and women the hours within which they may purchase alcoholic refreshments so she's basically saying um you know okay fair enough i promise that i will never do it again essentially um and it's during the years a couple of years before this is when she starts to write a book, a bit of a memoir, The Secrets of the 43 Club. And a lot of people who, you know, went to her clubs were very worried because, you know, she had members of the aristocracy, members of parliament, and she probably had all sorts of juicy stories on them. So a lot of people probably worried. A lot of people purchased the book, but actually she didn't give too much away. It's almost as if she um, she respected um, a lot of the people to not give certain stories. Or maybe there weren't any stories. I doubt it. But um, it was quite feeble. A very good book, but feeble um, in regards to how people thought it was going to be. Um, now, she died. We are coming to the end. <laughs> she died on the 19th of January, 1933, from influenza. She was 57 years old. 
Um, her son-in-law said Mrs Merrick's health had undoubtedly been weakened by her several periods of imprisonment. She had her funeral at St Martin's in the Field, which if you don't know is, is just on the corner of Trafalgar Square. And there was a huge turnout of people, even her husband, who was still her husband. They never actually got a divorce. They did separate in 1919, but they never actually divorced. And he apparently was completely inconsolable. And what's really lovely is the West End, Leicester Square, Piccadilly, Soho, dimmed their lights. So some clubs completely turned their lights out during the funeral. Um, Certain lights were able to be dimmed and... Uh, during her the the funeral at St Martin's in the field and that evening so um yeah I think uh, it just goes to show how how many people respected her and liked her and she is buried in Kensal Green and as I say you know there's a lot of a lot of arrows pointing towards the fact that she did this because um she had eight children and she wanted to educate them privately it's believed that £500,000 had passed through her hands over the course of her career. Remember, it's the 1920s, 1930s. It's a huge sum of money. But actually, when it came to um, selling her property and selling her assets, she had hardly anything. So it's believed all the money that she made, you know, she put it down straight away and probably gave it to her children. Um, and a couple of her children actually did very well. One of them marrying a duke, one of them marrying uh, a lord, I think it was as well. Um, so there we go. So this is somebody who is known as the Queen of Clubs, Kate Merrick, who opened a number of clubs, the 43 Club probably being the most famous, and being somebody that was placed in prison more than a handful of times, paid money for fines appeared in court and it never stopped her and I think if it wasn't for her ill health she probably would have gone on until until eventually she died so there we go there we go folks that is my little pod episode on Kate Merrick so I hope you enjoyed that sad that my little pod buddy isn't here with me um but we will return together next week and actually next week i don't know if you're aware but it's halloween um and the past couple of halloweens we have done um put on a little episode that's you know a little bit a little bit spooky and i think we're going to be doing the same next week so i am not going to spill spill spin the wheel of destiny um but i will tell you that next week Alex and I might be telling the odd ghost story or two so please come back don't let us put you off with our bad wi-fi (laughs) um so yes we look forward to seeing you then thank you very much for joining us as ever and we hope you have a beautiful spooky week